If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, and again, we're going to depart from our normal series in the Revelation and talk about something else this morning. In the, uh, the short passage that I'm going to read uh, from Acts 4, 27 and 28 is a passage full of all sorts of uh, implications. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Before I say anything, I, th- I feel like I'm a little echoey. Is there a way to turn me down or something? I don't want to have to listen to myself. I might fall asleep like everybody else. Just kidding. Acts 4, thank you, that's good. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Here now, the word of God. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, truly we have such a small idea of what a great God you are. And we do pray, Father, this morning as we discuss certain events that have transpired through the course of even recent history, that, Father, you would expand our thinking. You would help us to appreciate the greatness of the God who has rescued us from sin and death. That, Father, that you would bring into our hearts and minds just a true peace that surpasses all understanding based upon what, the, what a magnificent God you truly are and what you, in fact, do throughout the course of history and the things that will extend into eternities. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, on September 11th, 2001, an event took place that, I would argue, in one way or another, affected everyone in the free world. I remember even at the time getting communications from friends of mine who lived in New Zealand, wondering, you know, Paul, what's going on? It's an interesting thing, for for good or ill, how the remainder of the world looks to the United States for stability. And so, um, you know, when these planes crashed into the World Trade Center, the entire world began to feel unstable in terms of what this nation might be able to, to accomplish. And obviously, for those of you who don't know, it was on that date that 19 terrorists and four jets managed to kill thousands of civilians on American soil. So on this really 21st anniversary of that infamous event, I would like to ask and seek to answer this question, this much-asked question, where was God on 9-11? Now, I'm going to tell you, I have no expertise in foreign policy. Uh, I'm not a politician, I'm not a military strategist, so we're not going to discuss this morning what our military response should or should not have been. I I like to stay in my lane. I mean, I I have my opinions just like anybody else, but when you get in a pulpit, you don't want to just start talking about things that really aren't your field, so we're not going to talk about that. But I would say this, as a pastor... I am quite concerned with the theological implications attached to the way Christians view an event like this, because I think an event like that, it's a big event, can kind of be a macrocosm 
in terms of the way we view the tragedies that enter in our own individual lives. So when I look at what is God doing there, it tells me a little bit about what God is doing here. And at the risk of sounding uncharitable, and I don't want to sound, you know, mean-spirited or overly critical, I have to say, back then, I found myself mystified at the way Western high-profile clergymen responded to this event. And all, many, many churches were full, if you recall, and there were microphones in the faces of a lot of pastors. And I don't think that in my lifetime there's probably been an event that ferreted out what people, especially pastors, think, actually think, about God more than how they responded to 9-11. So you got to hear what everybody thought. Some, no doubt, seeking to protect the character of God, said things like, God didn't want it to happen, but he will turn it into something good. The daughter of a very famous evangelist made this comment. It was a very famous comment. It resonated with a lot of people. She said, we asked God to leave our country by eliminating things like prayer in schools, And God, being the gentleman that he is, did not stay where he was unwelcome. I know, I mean, I I feel that, you know, trying not to respond that way. And then she said, how can we complain when he doesn't protect us? We've asked him to leave. He's gone. Others actually went so far as to say that God simply couldn't stop it from happening without violating man's free will. It's kind of a, almost a semi-deist form of, God, uh, of religion. A, a deism is this idea that God in the very beginning wound up the clock of creation and then he just stepped back and whatever is going to happen, it's going to happen. And occasionally he might intervene, but not very often. But how are people who believe in God, the God of Scripture, to view an event like 9-11. Where do we make of it? Psychologically, intellectually, spiritually, where do we go with something like this? How can a good God allow such a thing to take place? And if I want to expand this a little bit, it's not just how can a good God, you know, it's not just Christians kind of working this out. How can humanity makes sense of a catastrophic event like 9-11. Just people on the street you might talk to. Liberals and conservatives, theists and atheists, were all incensed at what happened that morning. It wasn't like it was just Christians who were upset at what took place. But I'm going to tell you, when the conversations began and the dust of the World Trade Center transitioned from you know, the the dust that it became, there was the dust of what I would argue to be philosophical and intellectual fog. I'm listening to people talk about it, and I just can't get my arms around what they're saying. Now, I'm going to speak this morning specifically about this event, this being the anniversary, but I'm going to tell you this. The implications of this discussion apply to any event tragic or joyous, which finds its way into our lives. And I'll I'll tell you something else that, you know, when I did finally at a certain time in my Christian life 
kind of get my arms around this, I found it eminently consoling to me. I mean, I, I'm going to argue that what we're going to talk about this morning may be the most comforting thing in terms of how I view the events of my life that I've ever experienced in terms of my theological pursuits. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a distant second from the peace of the blood of Christ rescuing me from the wrath of God. But in terms of just going, how do I work things out in my life that are so difficult? Where is God? I feel like I'm praying to him and I, it's hitting the ceiling and bouncing back. And a matter of fact, we're going to see a prayer in a minute that looks just like that in Scripture. So what are some ways, I'm going to start off with a little bit of an apologetic, a little bit of a, what are some ways people looked at this event? So I'm going to start with some options and then we'll dial in to what I would argue would be the most biblical way to view an event like this. First, let's consider viewing an event like this from the eyes of an atheist. We have to acknowledge that our atheist friends were among those infuriated by 9-11. I wouldn't suggest for a second that we wouldn't sit together and look at each other going, what in the world's going on here? And upset, you know, know, the, 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 the horrid nature of the event. I think it would be foolish and insulting to look at an atheist and go, well, you don't have any feelings about this. I don't think, just so you understand, it is not the Christian's position that the Christian is more moral than the atheist. We have to understand that. That's not the difference. Well, going back to how an atheist would view this, the atheist doesn't have a problem with the very question, right? Where was God on 9-11, right? They don't have a problem with that. They don't believe in God. But I'll tell you this, the atheist actually has a bigger problem. And here's the problem. The problem the atheist has is giving any, and I'm going to highlight this, it's it's in italics in the notes, any authoritative account for why he thinks the attack was in fact evil. Because the people dancing in the streets in Afghanistan, they didn't think it was evil. The terrorists didn't think it was evil. So so why should the atheist think that his or her opinion is superior to theirs? Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying the atheist is a less moral person. I mean, Jeff Durbin, who, uh, who will be speaking here at the uh, Bonson Conference in November when Jeff and Cy... Uh, Ken Brug and Kate and I debated those three atheists. Jeff Durbin took a lot of heat for the way he opened that debate. I don't know if you remember this. And matter of fact, we went out to dinner beforehand, and I kind of said, I don't know if I would start with that. He, he basically wanted the atheists to give an account why it's wrong to eat babies. Remember this? And I remember thinking, oh, Jeff, you know, and everybody's like, Jeff Durbin thinks atheists want to eat babies. That is not... That was not his point, but I knew it was not going to be well understood. What what he was trying to do is find something that everybody in the room agreed to be wrong. And let me tell you, that's getting harder and harder to do. So you had to pick that, right? And his point was, you need to give me an absolute authoritative reason as to why something we would all agree to be wrong is in fact wrong. How do you do that as as an atheist, this idea of things being 
objectively and absolutely evil is very difficult to arrive at. When it gets right down to it, when you begin to investigate the thinking of a person who rejects the idea of a transcendent, holy, authoritative, absolute God, when it gets right down to it, it is just their opinion. It is my opinion that that was wrong. And when your opinion is ultimate, evil things take place. I mean, I happen to agree with my atheist friends who thought that event was evil. But that's not what we're talking about. It's why do you think it is evil? On what basis is it absolutely evil? If you and Osama bin Laden, we were all in the room together, and you were to argue, and he said, well, history will vindicate me, and on and on. At what point would you kind of go, all right, I'm not really winning this debate? Ultimately, the only answer to that debate, if you do an infinite regress on the debate, is that it is wrong in the eyes of God, and if you don't repent, you will face the judgment of God. Now, that that might sound simplistically theological, but that's where that conversation goes. Perhaps you remember the Nuremberg Nuremberg trials. How many of you are familiar with that? So the Nuremberg trials were the trials where the Nazis from World War II were being tried for crimes against humanity and these kind of terms that are really kind of somewhat ambiguous, really, when it gets right down to it. And you know what their argument was? Their argument was, we were responding to the highest authority we knew, which was Hitler. How can you fault us for submitting to our highest authority? Why is our highest authority less than your highest authority? Now, there's some merit in that argument when it gets right down to it, because if you do not have an authority that is absolute, objectively, transcendently absolute, who, by the way, has communicated what is right and wrong to humanity, that argument wins. All that to say, unless you believe in a God who's absolutely good, objectively good, who transcends all authority, unless you believe that there is, in fact, a king, capital K, of all kings, an absolute standard maker who's revealed his standard to mankind, you don't really have absolute grounds to accuse even the most evil despot of inappropriate behavior. Because when it gets right down to it, you both have the same standard, and that standard is yourself. Well, let's move on. I'm only going to spend a second on this second one because uh, your notes will see, you'll see polytheism. There are no, polytheism is the idea that there are many gods. And I'll ask this question. How many of you know a polytheist? Yeah, okay, so we got two, three. You know, so if you guys, if you three want to talk during Q&A, we'll talk. <laughs> but this idea, you know, that there are many gods and some gods are superior to other gods or good gods and bad gods and so forth. Sometimes, sometimes the good God wins, sometimes the bad God wins. We would argue that on September 11th, you know, today's polytheist in America would probably say, well, the bad God, bad gods won on that day. And again, there aren't too many polytheists around, so I'm only going to talk about this for a second, because one major flaw in the good God, bad God hypothesis is this. Who gets to decide? who the good gods are, and who the bad gods are. You see, the terrorists, they thought the good god won on 9-11. 
many people, I'd say, you know, any polytheist in this room would probably say, well, the bad gods won on that day. So what has to happen? Man has to put himself in the seat of judging the gods, thus making himself God. And then we're back to our original atheistic problem, right? That the ultimate authority lies with me. I'm judging which gods are right, which gods are wrong. All right, so let's just leave that aside for now. The next God we're going to talk about is what I call impotent monotheism. There is one God, but he's somewhat incapable. He couldn't stop an event like this. Some people actually said that because of the way God has kind of constructed his relationship with humanity, with creation. He has kind of put restrictions on himself and he couldn't stop what took place. If God, if the God, this God was incapable of doing this, we've got to begin to ask ourselves, what qualifies a being in terms of being God? What, what's the resume for somebody who's saying, I am God, but I can't stop 19 terrorists, 19 men in airplanes? You see, you have to ask yourself, is this the kind of God that I would entrust my soul to, my eternal soul to. Things he can't do. He couldn't stop these 19 guys. But can he stop the devil? If he can't stop 19 guys, can he stop the devil? Can he stop all of the demons? Am I going to entrust my eternal soul to a God who can't stop people from doing certain things? You see, this God would actually be inferior to the gods of polytheism because... This God's not merely losing to other gods. This God's losing to mere men. Well, let's kind of leave those behind now. And we're going to get in my notes. I have written to myself, the negligent God. Now, now I'm going to talk about what was really kind of the majority report that I, that I heard from the lips of the clergy in America. And that is this, that there is a God in heaven who's all-powerful. He was capable of stopping this, and he simply chose not to. It was, it, it was put this way. It was not his will that this should take place. Now, by the way, that word will means a lot of things. Because in a certain sense, I would say it was not his will if, you're, if by the will of God, you're talking about the moral will of God, if you're talking about the prescribed will of God, if you're talking about the Ten Commandments, it's not God's will for us to lie and steal and cheat and murder. But there's another use of the word will, and that is what God ordains to take place, his decreed will. Those are two different things. But they're basically saying that this is not something God actually wanted to take place this was the gentlemanly God. This is the God who's going, you've asked me to leave. I don't want this to happen, but you know, I'm going to put my hands behind my back and I'm just going to let it take place because you rudely asked me to leave. Now, it's not in my notes here, but let me tell you something that I'm firmly convinced of. You can ask God to leave all day long. He's not leaving. You, you know, interestingly enough, we talk about hell as being separated from God, this separation. That is not an accurate understanding of hell because God is omnipresent, and that includes hell itself. Hell is not the absence of God. It's the presence of God's wrath. 
God is there in his wrath. So this idea that God left is just, it is patently unbiblical in terms of even the most elementary and cursory understanding of, of God. But that was the position that kind of won the day. He stood with his hands gently clasped behind his back while planes crashed into buildings. But he will work it out for good. So now God becomes the God of damage control, right? Tragic events are not something he decrees to take place, but he is fully capable of fixing the mess after it happens. And I have to say, I think a lot of people think of God that way. I think a lot of people view Romans 8, 28, right? For God works all things for good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his will. They kind of view it as, okay, well, someday God's going to turn this into something good. He's going to take this mess and make it something good. I don't think that's the right understanding of Romans 8, 28. You see, this God, he's the God, I don't want the eggs scrambled, but now that they're scrambled, I'm going to go ahead and make an omelet. But let me tell you, and I, I hope, you know, I mean, I would prefer if I were to, if somebody were to ask me, what are the attributes that you'd like to see in those who, under your ministerial care? I mean, I, obviously, at the very top of that list would be faith and faithfulness and love and grace and mercy and patience and self-control and so forth. But I also would want a congregation of people who think clearly, who are critical in their thinking, who know a lie when they see it. They know the truth when they see it. I really would like people under my care to be wise in that capacity, to be able to kind of go online and see sermons and immediately be able to tell if there's an error. Like, I think there's a, that's a wonderful attribute for people to have, and I kind of want us to do that here in terms of this God who's taking scrambled eggs and turning it into an omelet. What is, what is wrong with that? Well, for one thing, how do we know when the bad event ends and the fixing begins? How do we know when that is taking place? I mean, is God right now making an omelet? Or are terrorists still scrambling eggs? Or you might, then people get very like emotional and subjective. Things seem to go their way, and they're like, look, I know that God's turning this into an omelet, because look at the omelet. Look how nice it looks. But how do you, how do you know there's no strychnine in the omelet? Right? How do you know, in fact, that, 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 that the mess is over and the good things have begun? I mean, if God is sitting on his hands during certain events in history, how can we possibly know when he is actually involving himself? How good does the event have to be before we acknowledge that God is now in the act of reparation? Remember this. We read in scriptures, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan himself transforms himself into what? An angel of light. He can make that omelet look pretty good when it's not a good omelet at all. It becomes impossible, if that's your mentality, if that's your theology, to ever discern when God is, in fact, at work fixing the mess. It just doesn't work. The view is popular. Why is it popular? Why did everybody go, yeah? I think it's popular because it seemingly relieves God 
of the responsibility for the tragic event. We, we do not want our Father, our grandfatherly God in heaven to somehow be responsible for that. So if we can shuffle him out of the room, right? Elvis has left the building. We get him out of the room and then he's exonerated. He's not guilty. But really? Does it really exonerate God? As if God needs us to exonerate him, right? Does not God's own law teach that if we are capable of helping and refuse to help, we're guilty? I mean, what is the definition of sin? It is a want. It's not only a transgression of the law of God. What? It's a want of conformity to the law of God. I mean, you think about on Judgment Day and when Jesus was telling about the parable of the sheep and the goats, what was the guilt assigned to the goats? I was, I was hungry and you didn't bring me any food. I was thirsty and you brought me no drink. They, they were sins of omission. These are things you should have done and you didn't do them. So to know the right thing to do and have the ability to do it and not do it makes you guilty. You know this. I mean, this should be obvious. I mean, if your child, if you have a child, a small child who's about to fall off the roof and you know it and you're capable of doing something about it, but you allow that child to fall, there's not a court in the land that will not charge you with criminal negligence. You go to jail for that, and rightfully so. Now, there's any number of passages in the Bible that say this. I'll just give you this one. Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And he will, and will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Right? Basically, the passage is saying, you've got some responsibility for people who are in need. It's not okay to just ignore that it's taking place because God knows that you know it. So if we're capable of doing something and don't do it, we're guilty. So according to God's own law, which, by the way, is an extension of his own character, negligence is incriminating. So if the offered answer is that God could have stopped the tragic event, but merely chose not to, he would be guilty of negligence according to his own law. So, now unless we back up to the impotent God who couldn't stop the event, that view doesn't exonerate God at all. And almost when I say that, I have to say I feel kind of almost creepy saying that, as if, that, that we can exonerate God. As if God is in heaven going, hey, I need some help. Can somebody defend me, please? But that's the mentality that we've embraced in terms of the type of God we think is, in fact, the King of kings and Lord of lords. All right, so I've spent a bit of time now on those things in terms of what I don't think it is. So let's, so let's just take a minute here, and I'll tell you what I think it is. There are numerous examples that I could use to make the argument I'm about to make. I, you could use the story of Joseph and his brothers, right? 
What happened to Joseph was pretty bad. But Joseph, Joseph recognized that God meant it to happen for good. We could use the example of the king of Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10, an evil king. But in Isaiah chapter 10, it talks about that king being an axe in the hand of God. We could talk about Job, you know. Some pretty awful things happened to Job. Here's a trick question. Who did that stuff to Job? All those awful things. Who did that stuff? Well, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans did it. Hmm. The devil did it. Yes. But when, 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 when Job is asked, who does he say? He says, do we not, when his wife says, you know, just curse God and die and get this over with. He says, do we not accept evil from God as well as good? Who was he talking about when he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him? Who was he talking about there? Not talking about the devil. So there are any number of examples that I could give, but I'm going to give the example from this little book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. Maybe you haven't read Habakkuk in a while, but I think Habakkuk, what Habakkuk does, it just opens the curtain in terms of God going, let me show you what's actually taking place. It's, um, you might want to call this, for those of you who are... Um, philosophy students, this is uh, biblical metaphysics, right? What is really taking place? And it's astonishing, but it really answers the problem. And not only does it answer the problem that we're talking about this morning in terms of where was God on 9-11, it also answers the thing, this thing called theodicy. Theodicy is this idea, and you hear people ask this all the time as if there's no answer to the question, if God is all good, and if God is all powerful... Why is there evil in the world? That is answered by Habakkuk. Let's take a quick look here at Habakkuk, because then I will tell you, and I, I, I hope this is true for you, that when I look at what's going on here, I find it so amazingly comforting. That God has not walked out of the room. He, he, you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor, he, the, the Lord is not in the hallway going, I'll come in now, and now that everybody, he's there. Right? Do we not learn that in Psalm 139? If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, behold, you are there. When I go to bed, you're there. And when I wake up, you're there. You know what that also means? He was there all night while you were sleeping. I mean, it's this idea that there's never a time when God is not there. Habakkuk will help us to make sense of how God works, I think, in history And it starts with a prayer. And as I looked at this prayer this morning, I thought, this seems like a prayer that a lot of us are praying now, as much as we were praying praying 21 years ago. Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. Okay, so that's where the prayer starts. One of the things I love about reading the Bible is just how real it is in terms of the way Habakkuk's going, I'm praying, and you're just not listening. I mean, have we not felt that way? And you will not hear, even cry out to you, Lord, violence, and you will not save. 
Why do you show me iniquity? Why are you letting me see all this horrible stuff and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me? There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgments proceed. I mean, how many of us have not felt this way in terms of just looking at our own country? I mean, horrible things taking place. And you're like perversions surrounded by them, violence surrounded by them. This, this cry of Habakkuk sounds so similar to the prayers that I hear to this very day in our own land. Our land is filled with evil, and when are you going to do something? We appear to be drowning in a sea of adultery and fornication and sexual confusion and misconduct and corruption and violence and idolatry and severely unbiblical economics, if I could add that. And the law seems powerless to do anything about it. And the wicked seem to be winning. And our children appear to be on the altar. They're not even hiding it anymore. It's like, bring the kids in. Bring them in. I mean, you sit there and you think to yourself, Lord, when are you going to do something about it? Well, that's the prayer. And now we have the reply to that prayer. Verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. I mean, what a statement. I mean, I don't think we can appreciate the force of these words. I mean, the force of these words for God saying, you know, it's almost like God's going, I'm going to tell you, and it's going to freak you out. You are, you're just going to be like, what? You're going to be We don't see that in the Bible very often, those words. We don't see God going, this is going to be astonishing. I mean, what he does is astonishing, but he almost never says, be ready. Be ready for what I'm about to say here. And I will say this, I mean, because he's kind of, like I said, the force of the words coming from God are, this is going to be perplexing to you. You're going to, you're going to, it's going to take you a while to get your arms around what I'm about to say here. And I'll tell you this. I have found this response to be the case. And so much so, it's so astonishing, it's so, if I will, if you will, perplexing, that a lot of people I know who believe their Bibles won't believe this. I, I'm going to argue that the majority of the Christians I know are going, no, no. That's, that's not the way it works. Well, <clears throat> let's see what he says, what his answer is in the next verse. For I am indeed raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgments and their dignity proceed from themselves Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. And I I stopped it there. The description goes on and on. 
I mean, God is going, let me tell you how horrible these people are. And like I said, I cut it short here because I, I, I want us to not lose track of what's going on. Because Habakkuk is, is, Habakkuk is going, things are really bad. How long? And God's answer is, not long. Right? I'm, I'm, about, I'm about to act. But what is striking here is the means by which God is going to exact his judgments. He, it says in the verse, he is raising up the Chaldeans. I am raising them up. And, and then he describes these people in the most vicious terms imaginable. They are the worst people that you can think of. And not only are they horrible people, a horrible nation governed by false gods, they're also very, very powerful at the same time. The acts of God's judgment will be a bitter and hasty nation full of terrible, dreadful, self-centered people who, if we read on in the passage, ascribe power to a false god. It almost sounds in the way that God is describing them as if he's almost impressed with how bad they are. They almost appear, and I guess maybe the easiest way, and this falls short in some categories, maybe the easiest way to begin, for us to begin to understand what's going on here is that the Chaldeans are God's junkyard dogs. All right? I mean, you know, the idea of a junkyard dog, is that still a thing? You know, but you know, you get the idea here because you you've got this junkyard and it's fenced in, and then there's dogs in there. It used to be Doberman Pinschers, now they'd be probably pit bulls or something. And if you get near the fence, what do they do? They are they're going to come after you. But let me tell you something about the junkyard dog. The junkyard dog is not very likely going. I need to protect my master's possessions. No, the junkyard dog just sees your jugular and wants it. We can't, we can't assign to the junkyard dog noble attributes. And if you have a junkyard that's being vandalized, you want to get the meanest junkyard dog you can possibly find to protect your junk. They're cruel and they enjoy their malicious and vicious attacks. And yet, God has raised them up. God has ordained these wicked barbarians for his own just and holy designs. Now, is this starting to blow your mind? Or is what God's saying kind of replying to you now? Where you're going, whoa, this is kind of going beyond my conceptions of the grandfatherly God, you know, that I show during you know, my Christmas decorations. <laughs> I mean, they're wicked. Could not the same thing be said for the 19 terrorists? That God is raising them up to do what he wants them to do. They're not doing it to honor God. They're, not, they're doing it for their own wicked reasons. But that doesn't mean somehow they're outside the pale of God's sovereign hand. Could this not be said of any difficulty we encounter? 
I mean, if you don't recognize that whatever you've heard, whatever's going on in your life, in one way or another, comes from the divine hand of a sovereign God who governs whatsoever takes the place, then you, your God is smaller than God needs to be. We need to, we need to recognize that God ordains every moment and everything. I mean, Jesus uses the smallest thing imaginable to make this point, right? The sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from the will of my Father in heaven. The the hairs on your head are numbered. I mean, things that we wouldn't even consider. Jesus is explaining. That is how involved God is in human history. He never, again, he never leaves the room, and it's not as if he's incapable. Now, I'm not telling you this is an easy lesson. I realize that psychologically, it's almost like we have to get over the hump And this was hard for Habakkuk to hear. So he asks, I think what any one of us would ask. Verses 12 and 13. Now, keep in mind, in the Hebrew and in the Greek language in the Bible, there are no intonations, right? It's, you know, it's just a monotone, right? But I'm I'm going to take a risk here, but I'm telling you in advance, where I'm going to put some intonation in terms of what I think was bothering Habakkuk. Oh, Lord, you've appointed them for judgment. Oh, Rock, you have marked them for correction. You get my point here. Like, he's kind of going, wait a minute, them? And then he says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. And you cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? In short, Habakkuk wonders how a righteous God, when it gets right down to it, if you read the passage, Habakkuk's going, how can you possibly be hanging out with these people? And it's not just that. Because he starts off going, you can't even look at them. Your eyes are too pure. And yet, the second part of that query is, let alone use them as an instrument of your judgment. Like, you shouldn't even be hanging out with them. And yet, the answer to my prayer is you're raising them up. When it gets right down to it, what Habakkuk, if we had time to go through the whole thing, what Habakkuk is, ben, ends up saying is, Lord, I know I've been praying because of how evil things are in Israel. But these people you're raising up, they're more evil than us. How's, how does that math work? You see, Habakkuk's first prayer concerned itself with zeal for God's glory. He was like, Lord, you're not being glorified in our nation at all. Now he's questioning the means by which God answers the prayer. God's going, okay. And then he's going, well, wait a minute. There's got to be a better way. I mean, this is a bit much. How can God associate himself with such corruption? I mean, God then answers. Now, this is going to take us to another level. God is going, okay, see what's going on here, right? Habakkuk is going, we're evil. When are you going to do something? God says, right now, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They're pretty bad people. Habakkuk is going, I know they're really bad. They're worse than us. How is it, 
how is it that somehow that's okay to do? And now God responds to that question. And I'll just read one verse. There's a whole passage that talks about it. Speaking in regard to the Chaldeans, these bloodthirsty, vicious people, we read, God says, the cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you. He's talking to the the Chaldeans. And utter shame will be on your glory. All right, let's just sum this up. God hears a prayer from Habakkuk. When are you going to do something about this? God says, right now I'm going to do something. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. And then Habakkuk says, well, wait a minute. They're worse than us. And then God says, I know. And then I'm going to judge. I'm, I'm raising them up to judge you. And then I'm going to judge them for what they do to you. That's what it says. Well, God has now answered both of his questions. And it is in Habakkuk where you read the very postmillennial verse, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. See, what God is saying is, look at nobody's getting away with anything. He goes, I'm going to deal with evil. I'm going to deal with evil in Israel, and then I'm going to raise these people up to do this, and then I'm going to deal with them. And ultimately, what I'm going to do is deal with evil throughout the course of history, and the righteousness of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I will accomplish what I'm going to accomplish. And I'm going to accomplish it in the means by which I determine to accomplish it. God is going to, you know, I remember in seminary, one of my professors didn't like this. It was more of an Armenianish kind of class, you know, where they, they, don't, they wouldn't believe what I'm teaching right now. I said, you know, God can take a crooked stick and draw a straight line with it. And that's what he's saying here. If you understand my metaphor, the crooked stick are the Chaldeans. God can take a crooked stick, he can draw a perfectly straight line and then break the stick. And that's the way God is working in terms of his judgment of Israel. And I'm going to tell you this, at first it might seem, you know, I think it is somewhat paradoxical, but I don't think it's contradictory. I think that, is it incomprehensible? I think there, I do think so. But you know what? One of the attributes of God for which we praise him is his incomprehensibility. And it is when we seek to kind of remove the incomprehensibility that we become heretics. I, 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 at least for me, the Trinity is somewhat incomprehensible. Like, I have a hard time getting my arms around that. Jesus being truly God and truly man, I have a hard time getting my arms around that. But anybody, but the, uh, the, the religious persuasions who've thought to kind of war against that inevitably become heretical. And I think the idea that God is working through history in such a way as to use wicked things for his own just, holy, and glorious ends, to resist that leads you into a small understanding of who God is. Proverbs 16.4, doesn't it say, God has created all things for his own will, even the wicked for the day of his own glory. Right? God, God has created everything for his own glory. Well... You might ask this question, you might, how, how can God hold people responsible for the events that he ordains? You, you, can't, you can't read your Bibles and ignore the fact that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Even the free choices 
of individual people. Proverbs 21 says, The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he will. Right? The heart of the king, that means the thoughts of the king, the decisions of the king, the deci- where the king is going to go. In a certain, is the king, by the way, is the king doing what the king wants to do? Absolutely. But in a deeper sense, that king is being governed by the will of God. And when we jettison that from our thinking, we end up with a smaller view of God. And let me tell you, I don't find it comforting to think that God somehow is uninvolved in the affairs of life. I don't think this is entirely what he meant, but even Einstein made the comment, God would not play dice with the universe. There must be order. Now, I'm not appealing to Einstein as a theologian. I think he needs to stay in his own lane also. Nonetheless, I think there's some sense to that, that if you don't have a God who ordains whatsoever comes to pass, you end up kind of believing in luck or chance or, you know, some type of random happenings. And I'll tell you this, I don't find that comforting, nor do I find it biblical. So how are Christians to view the events of September 11th? Well, how are we to view any event? Is, is it the hand of God? Let me tell you something. The finger, God's fingerprints are all over the place. Right? If we had CSI creation, right? we got our forensic team in there. You know what they'd find? The, God's fingerprints over everything. But we have to recognize this. When God ordains these types of events that we would look at and rightfully view as tragic, because tragedy means there's death, God does not do these things as some kind of rash, capricious, or vicious dictator. I can't tell you specifically why God does the things he does. And that was another thing that I really didn't like when, this, when all the microphones went in the faces of people. Everybody wants to be a prophet. Well, God did this because we did that. God did this because we did that. Now, I don't doubt that God judges nations, and I don't doubt that he judges nations for their ungodliness, but I'm not going to become a prophet and go, well, the moment, you know, 1962, he took prayer out of school. One generation later, this happened as if I'm the Apostle Paul and not merely Pastor Paul. And I think people get a little too big for their britches when they try to make those connections. I don't always know what the connections are, but I know that there is a God who makes the connections. And we are not to look for here going, what are you doing, what are you doing? We are to look to him, ever, for whatever comfort we might have and whatever difficulty we find ourselves going through. And I, I firmly believe in this, that when all is said and done, and we are looking now not through a mirror dimly, but face to face, and God shows us at whatever level he will, the divine tapestry of the history that he ordained, we'll praise his name for every moment of that history, even the darkest day in our lives, we will praise him for it. Now, I emotionally kind of don't always feel that way, right? But like Habakkuk, I don't emotionally always feel like God hears my prayers. But the fact that I don't feel like it doesn't mean it's not true. John Calvin made a statement I found very truthful and comforting in addressing this issue. He said, except, that, except then we be fully persuaded that God by his secret providence regulates all these confusions. He's talking about, this is from, from Habakkuk. Satan will a hundred times a day, yea, every moment, shake that confidence which ought to repose in God. <clears throat> 
Well, I want to finish with this thought. Because we, we were asking, where was God on 9-11? But there was an event much more evil than 9-11 that took place. I mean, I don't know a lot of people who ask this question. Where was God at the cross? Now, you might go, well, how is that more evil than 9-11? I mean, it is more evil than 9-11. Because the only innocent man since the fall of man comes into the world and he is betrayed by the religious leaders. He's betrayed by the government. He's betrayed by his, abandoned by his closest friends. He goes through a mockery of a trial where he's lied about, on and on. He's the only person, actually, who doesn't deserve death. I mean, in a very deep sense. I mean, I hope we understand that the Bible teaches that, number one, we're all sinners, and number two, that the wages of sin is death, which means What? that we all deserve death. I mean, that's not me being all negative and stuff. That's me kind of going, wow, God is really gracious that I haven't received the death that I clearly deserve. But we don't, we need to rethink our view of the human race. Makes me think of um, Aliens. Remember that movie back in the 80s with uh, Sigourney Weaver? It was a second, it was a sequel to Alien. I always thought it was funny how they'd make a sequel and just make it plural, right? But she had this really bad experience with these aliens who were very much like the Chaldeans, right? They were, they were just, there was nothing good about them. And in the second, in the second, in the sequel, they go to this planet and it turns out there's not just an alien, there's a whole bunch of them, right? And they're growing and growing And she makes the statement, I think her name was Ripley. She goes, we need to get back in the rocket ship, go into outer space, and nuke the entire planet. And everybody kind of watching going, yeah, you probably should do that, right? But there was some capitalist (laughs) who wanted to make a profit, you know, and so forth. I mean, we, we deserve, that's what we deserve. We deserve God to nuke us from outer space. But he has chosen not to do that. Right? He has, I mean, you, that, you're like going, that seems pretty severe, Pastor Paul, except that, you know what? In an experiment in the beginning of Genesis, God does exactly that with a flood. It was almost God kind of going, let me show you what you actually deserve. And if you reject the preaching of Noah, this is what's going to happen. And then he makes a promise not to do that. And I think God's promise not to do to the world what he did to Noah is based upon the fact that he is going to proclaim the gospel and that he's going to bring people to himself, not because we are inherently better than the people during the time of Noah. Nonetheless, that's kind of the way it's it's viewed. But not so with Jesus, right? Jesus is the only one who does not deserve what the rest of fallen humanity deserves. So I would argue it's the darkest moment in human history. Now, my question that we're going to end with is, where was God during the cross? And that's why I opened with the the passage I opened with. Because it's not unclear where God was during the most evil event in human history. Again, Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? Whatever you, who's he talking to? Whatever your 
hand and your plan, and here's a word people don't like, predestined to take place. Predestined, you know what that means? It means to predestine. I mean, it does. What it means is to determine beforehand. When do you think God determined that? When did God make that determination? Before. Yeah, before the beginning of time, right? God's holy decrees before, before the beginning of time. It's unavoidable. The, here, is where, here is where I feel we can expand our thoughts toward God. First of all, I was making an argument for like a true monotheism, a true God, but this... This is, separates the triune God from all other monotheistic gods, and that is that he had determined in eternity past to send his son to be betrayed, to go through all the things that he went through, that he might rescue us from sin and death. That is uniquely Christian. You don't see that in any other understanding of religion. It is only the Christian faith where God truly accommodates our weakness and our need in such a way as to maintain his own just character. But God determined in advance that that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Israelites, pretty much everybody, all the people who did evil things to Jesus, God had determined in eternity past that those things would take place. And here is the wild thing, is that the most evil event ever perpetrated by human beings in the course of history will also be the same event for which we praise God for all of eternity. You see, where if you don't, if you don't understand God the way Habakkuk is explaining God to us, that just doesn't work. I think the Westminster Confession is quite accurate when it says God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Friends, there is a God who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And if we are, in fact, among those who love him, if we are among those called according to his purpose, we can know this, that this is aiming in every aspect every moment to ultimate good, and not only ultimate good, but even in that passage from Romans 8.28, if you follow it through, in all of this, and all of these difficulties, and all of this suffering, and all of this pain, and all of these devastations, he is taking his own people, and he's conforming them into the image of his son, which finds its conclusion in glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would bow before your incomprehensibility. We know, Father, that, uh, that truly the secret things belong to you, but you have revealed things to us, things that we should find so comforting, albeit challenging. And may, Father, you ever expand our thinking in terms of the great love with which we are loved, the great goodness of the living God, the great sacrifice in sending your own Son to rescue us, and Father, that you can, in fact, use the wicked choices of evil people to accomplish your good and holy ends, that we might recognize that we're never really at the mercy of the wicked, that, Father, there is not a, there's simply not a moment in our lives where you're just not, that where you're not there, where you're looking at us going, I've, I've ordained this, 
Take peace in me. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.